So I'm going to chant. If you know the chant, you're welcome to join me. And uh, if you just like the tune but know the chant, you're welcome to hum along uh, or just to listen silently. Namo tasa Pagato Arahato Samma Samputasa Namo tasa Pagato suffering has been reduced and eased, even those whose hearts have been freed completely, or little by little, by this teaching and path of practice, all of their footsteps over time, all those who are practicing now, this evening, around the world, in so many places and all those to come with a heart of enormous appreciation awe and gratitude so the room has filled up during the time that we were sitting together (laughs) it's nice to see And many of you are meditators for some time now. I can sense, you know, it's a different feeling. It's a really different feeling to be in a room together with a bunch of meditators. Even people who are meditating for the first time, actually it's a really different thing to do. It makes for a very different sense of presence individually and, uh, and together, yeah? So... Nice. I've never been in this space before, and uh, it's nice to come into this space here with all of the tall buildings and uh, and houses and lights around, just like uh, sitting in our yurt or out in the open under the starry sky uh, on the coast, in the forest at our awakening forest hermitage. Uh, that sense of the meditators together there under the under the night sky on the rocks at the top of the mountain and uh, and here downtown in the heart of Oakland not so different in a way yeah something about these human bodies and minds and a very special technology that we're running just like when somebody's cell phone goes off up in the top of the mountain uh, and and hear how the sound sounds so similar and the same <laughs> uh, also, for this amazing technology that we've got going on with these uh, uh, human bodies and minds and what it is to meditate. 
what it is to be mindful, what it is to relax, be present, aware, and uh, to be uh, awakening. For our minds, our knowing of ourselves, um, and um, and each other, even to grow uh, that much uh, in time and space together, just in these few minutes. Pretty amazing thing. Yeah. So we were speaking earlier. And uh, I've been asked if I would speak about something that uh, I made up the name for. The trappings of non-self. Trappings of non-self. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> uh, if we were talk to talk about the trappings of self, then I think it would actually be the very same subject. <laughs> In Buddhism, in the Buddhist teaching, properly, trappings of self, trappings of non-self, same subject. <laughs> uh, maybe just a, a different, a little bit of a different name. So uh, this is meant to be an introduction to uh, what is called in the old Pali language, old Indian language, that's like the kind of like the ordinary local language as compared to Sanskrit, which was very, you know, precise and used for um, great works of art and poetry and religious and spiritual experience um, and became quite an elite language. Pali was like, um, I don't know, maybe it's like speaking southern drawl as compared <laughs> to <laughs> high British English or something like this. So, um, in the Pali language, uh, this subject that we're going to be looking at is called anatta. And uh, atta uh, in Sanskrit is atman. <coughs> so some of you actually might have heard of <coughs> atman before from spiritual lessons <coughs> or yoga class or where? Comparative Religion 101. Comparative Religion 101. <laughs> there you go, the Atman. Great, great concept uh, from the, the uh, philosophies of the East. Uh, and Atman used to be, early on, I think it was generally translated as the soul. But now, in contemporary Buddhism, much more popular translation is self. And I was reflecting, <coughs> in fact, we were reflecting together earlier about why there might have been this shift in translation for Atta in Pali. It's like Pali, everything, you take out unnecessary consonants. <laughs> Who needs that <laughs> extra consonant in there? So Atman becomes Atta. is <laughs> much easier. And <laughs> it all just... You know, the sounds can blend together more in Pali. It doesn't have that kind of, uh, like, all, all those extra letters that Sanskrit has. Um, so the, the Atta, or the Atman, uh, we were thinking about why uh, the earlier translation of soul might have shifted uh, to self. And I think that it might have to do with the fact that a lot of the early translators of Buddhism and yoga and these great spiritual traditions coming from the East came from a Christian or Judeo-Christian background. And encountering Buddhism and this teaching on anatta or anatman, no soul, or later translated as no self, we thought for those who are Christian and who are being welcomed to, you know, uh, or came from a Christian background and were exploring spirituality and these great meditative traditions, uh, the idea of, if Atman were translated as soul, the idea of no soul 
I was hearing even I didn't know because I wasn't raised Christian myself and so there's a lot of things that you know I've, I've learned things from friends and from the society and culture over time sometimes the stuff you get from culture is not so precise and clear it's like you just get a kind of a, a general feeling of like something is popular or something is not okay and you're not supposed to talk about it or maybe you don't even realize it but it's just there in the environment so you pick that up and it's like you know not that's this is okay this is not okay. And we were thinking that for some of those earlier translators, uh, the idea of soul might have been very, very deep and strong in the tradition or the culture that they were born in, and might have been like a lot of really interesting things in Buddhism and things that they wanted to explore and wanted to be able to work with. And the Buddhist teaching is generally, generally, traditionally, there's an open door policy. Somebody does not have to convert to anything to come in the door when we chant. Even now in the Theravada tradition in our daily chanting, there's this part of it that we repeat over and over again that says, Ehipasiko, Opanaiko. This is Pali, so again, uh, all the consonants are a little easier. Ehipasiko uh, means come and see. Opanaiko, like for the uh, come and see for yourself. So it means an open door policy. And the Buddha was very well welcoming to all kinds of people. In fact, I'm not sure that the Buddha was the founder of Buddhism, <coughs> in fact. Uh, I don't know that he himself was into being a Buddhist or was actually encouraging anyone else to be a Buddhist, truly. If we look at the old texts, as Lulu said, I've studied the Pali texts even in the, in the old language. These are thought to be sometimes called early Buddhism, sometimes called original root Buddhism, or the early teachings. And later on, then there's you know, many fantastic developments in Mahayana and Vajrayana. Uh, Buddhism that took some of the concepts like emptiness or non-self or uh, some of these ideas and just really like the middle way and really went deeply into many of these ideas. And old, old Buddhist teaching, like if you get into Vajrayana Buddhism now, to learn something there's something called esoteric teaching and then you have to have an initiation and permission from the guru, the teacher and all of that before you are going to learn something because that's secret teaching. Yeah? Original Buddhism, the Buddha said, no closed fist, which means there is no, there is no secret teaching here. It's open, called an open hand or open, open fist or empty fist teaching yeah? in the old language. And ehipasiko means come and see. And originally when the Buddha was teaching, everybody who he was teaching were nobody. None of them were Buddhist completely. Mm -hmm. And so how could he teach to Buddhists if <laughs> they didn't exist? <laughs> uh, but uh, it wasn't then that he just started, I think, even like uh, after some time then requiring that people become Buddhist. Uh, so he welcomed inquiry and welcomed skeptics and welcomed people from the many various uh, traditions of belief and non-belief of his time. So there were those who were very much into God, there were those who were into lots of gods, there were those who were into karma and rebirth, there were those who thought everything ends at death and whatever you do makes absolutely no difference. That was one popular philosophy at that time. It's like you can do anything. If I tell you the example from the, from the polytext, the way that it was, that teaching was laid out is like, have you ever heard of the River Ganges in India? Very popular and famous river still now to this time. So the way it was taught uh, was you could go along the River Ganges and just slay people left and right. It sounds really horrific, doesn't it? And still there's going to be no effect. It doesn't matter. And you could do so many acts of generosity and loving kindness and care and all of that and also no effect. doesn't matter. And this is now, I don't know what you would call it exactly, but there were those who were saying, you know, there is no, basically there is no cause and effect. What you do just doesn't matter. And I think that idea actually still exists in our world, yeah? And sometimes maybe it's just part of our human psyche in a way that sometimes we feel 
like that and, and just feel like going, especially when we try to do something and it seems like it doesn't get anywhere. <laughs> and it seems like there's no effect. It seems like there's no, in the short run, sometimes it seems like there's no reaction. And lots of people today also believe that when you die, that's it. You're just, you know, this is just an organism and mind is basically brain. And when the heart and the breath and everything stops, that it, that's it. It's done. It doesn't matter how you lived your life. It's finished. Yeah? So that idea was around in the Buddhist times. So he was teaching to a lot of people of various kinds of faith and <coughs> faith, those who were theists and atheists. Uh, even there was a popular religious cult that was called dog duty ascetics. So dog duty ascetics, <laughs> <laughs> for those listening to the recording, that was a doggy sneeze that just happened <laughs> right on cue. <laughs> That's because we have a doggy right in front here. So there was something called dog duty ascetics. And this doggy here would probably even cringe to know what dog duty aesthetics were. Uh, dog duty aesthetics was the human being would not use clothes or anything like that and would go around and eat dung and roll in dung and would only eat like garbage that had been left out uh, in you know places like, like dogs like to do and they wouldn't talk and they would go, wouldn't walk upright, and they would go around like, you know, rolling in filth, and um, I mean, maybe they wouldn't call it filth, but anyway, excrement, uh, and behaving like a dog, and this one I don't even completely understand, like, why would, <laughs> why would there be, <laughs> to our sense these days, would we call that a religious tradition? And yet, also, there are some pretty wild things that are going under the name of religious tradition. Maybe because we're familiar with them, we, we don't think they're wild right now. But, or, you know, a particular, like, cult or sect or, or you know, popular way of living that people in the future, if they look back and read back, they might be like, we look back on the 70s and, <laughs> what was going on with them? <laughs> That's wild what they were wearing and what they were doing and uh, the things that they liked and, and did together. So there was, a, there was a lot of different stuff going on. There were naked ascetics. There still are in India. Yeah? So there are, this is something we don't have in the United States. Uh, like, there are places where people can go nude, but how many of them, I, actually I think some are doing that as a spiritual and religious practice. Anyway, in India, can walk around like that and not get arrested because that's considered to be a bona fide religion. It has an ancient tradition. And so that, that was another one of the things going on. People did wild stuff that they're still doing also, like, what is it, uh, sleeping on beds of nails, uh, fasting extremely, uh, what else? I mean, you lost me with the dog. Even the Buddha himself actually did this kind of uh, extreme uh, fasting and self-mortification for quite some period of time, like near to the point of death before having his intuition of the middle way and actually a memory from childhood, remembering being a young boy and sitting underneath a tree and just becoming really, really present and mindful and very aware and a calm and relaxed and, and very, very aware um, of, of the body, of the breath, and then becoming just deeply, deeply calm and relaxed, and then going into a deep meditation. So he didn't even realize the passing of time. And later on, doing this really heavy-duty, heavy-duty practice, uh, severe asceticism, and finding that it actually wasn't, wasn't working and to go to more extreme was going to lead to death. And so he, he recalibrated, needed to stop and, uh, and recalibrate and take a kind of uh, 
uh, what's it called? Kind of when you do a kind of self-analysis, you check in where you're at right now. It's kind of an awakening that people, some people have in their lives. I've had moments like this where, you know, we may be going and going with things, and sometimes we get into who knows what, and then suddenly there's something that makes us stop, and we wake up and become really present, and then we we recalibrate. Yeah, what is it that Garmin say? Midlife crisis? No, Garmin. <laughs> a reality check? Reality <laughs> check, yeah, thank you. But the Garmin says something. The Garmin? Yeah, the GPS, when you, like, when you turn around and then the GPS, re what? Recalibrating. Recalibrating. Yeah. Recalibrating. Recalibrating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Recal, yeah, means you calibrate. Recalibrating, yeah. recalculating, yeah. Like the uh, so it, it's just because I've been in this last little bit of time of travel, I've been riding in cars with people with GPS <laughs> and trying to help them out and without <laughs> getting too dizzy and vomiting and spinning around and recalculating and lost satellite, lost satellite <laughs> reception, and then got it back again and okay. And then there's this re recalibration where this, in this case, the device has become like it's clear about where it's at again. And so this is supposed to have happened to the Buddha then uh, at that time. And then he remembered back to this time of childhood and this very simple thing that happened that if you've been around kids, you've probably seen them at some time just wrapped, absorbed, completely mindful, and even even absorbed in what they're looking at. And for kids, this is a very pleasurable experience. They're very awake, but they're not stressed. Yeah? And this is then what the Buddha remembered. And with the power of that memory, he was able to really recalibrate. And then he understood, it's time to get something to eat. <laughs> and then he understood, it's time to go take a bath. <laughs> and he understood a number of things like this, and then sat down again, uh, clear about what he was going to try to work with next, which ended up being successful. So going back to the body, going back to the breath, practicing with mindfulness of breathing. He didn't say that everybody has to practice with mindfulness of breathing, but for the Buddha himself, practicing with mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of the breath was his entryway into, with his intuition of the middle way, that was his entryway into gaining what he felt was the awakening and the transformation that he had been uh, aiming for. And even, you know, practicing like this severe kind of self-torture, aiming for trying to get through the stuff that was there that seemed like it was hindering and obstructing him from being able to see clearly and was just causing so much suffering. And he had seen this suffering like projected outwards and then experienced it and felt and saw it deeply in himself, in his own body and mind. And that's what led to feeling like I need to do something to, de to deal with this. What can, I, what can I do? What can I do to work with this? And there were these severe ascetics and dog duty ascetics and all these different kinds of ascetics with the different, these different teachings around. But he didn't find that any of them actually worked for what he was really, like he felt like it was his deep, deep, real purpose. But that intuition then of the middle way and the memory of being a child and becoming deeply mindful and rapt attention and aware and going back to that is what ended up working. It's what ended up doing what, what he was hoping for, for him, because going through that experience then fully, then he felt like what needed to be done was done. What needed to be done has been done. There is no more of the, uh, what is it, the confusion, the doubt, the angst, the suffering, the feeling hindered, obstructed, bound up with things, afflicted, uh, deluded, dot, 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 all, all of that, that he was trying to get uh, free from, uh, that it cleared, and uh, he was able to get through it. 
able to get through it to the other side and uh, without dying without dying, which is a really important point because for, <laughs> you know, for the Jains at that time, this is, there's another religious tradition that was really popular in that time and space that started shortly before the Buddha started, uh, started teaching. Yeah, and that one, that one, people starved to death and that, that starving, that fasting to death was the ultimate and it was said then with that great renunciation and letting go at the time of death then they would realize what they were searching for and the epitome of the spiritual path. So the Buddha asked you know, a fellow Jain contemplative, how does anyone know? Have any of them come back to <laughs> say afterwards, this really works? And he said, well, no. And <laughs> then how do you know? Because our teacher said so. We have faith in our teacher. Has your teacher experienced it yet? Well, no. He will when he dies, we think. And is he going to be able to teach you after he dies? No. If he realizes nirvana, he's not coming back. <laughs> then how do you know? And so they had this conversation like this, and the Buddha thought that it was not, not at least for him, that wasn't acceptable. That just going on faith with the premise that what you need to do is starve to death, and then you'll realize what your goal is, was not... Um, he, he didn't feel like that was a good risk. Yeah? <laughs> he felt it was a poor, a poor <laughs> risk. <laughs> Especially when it's not just putting your life on the line, but you have to die first, actually. <laughs> so, <clears throat> but there are people who are still doing it. Yeah? And it can sound really good. It's like the ultimate fast, and you know you're going to realize at the at the time of death. And there are lots of people. There are the religious traditions today that will also say that you will know the goal of this of this faith or this religion after you die. Yeah. There there are those that say so also. Yeah. And so then it becomes purely a matter of faith. So this is, and I'm not saying whatever the goal may be for any particular faith, whether that will happen after death or not. I'm, I'm not trying to say that, but at least for, uh, for the Buddha, he, he felt like, uh, I don't know, a kind of pragmatist in a way, like very much into what can be seen in this lifetime, what can be done in this lifetime, what we can see and know for ourselves. So the ehi pasiko is like welcome, open door policy, come to see, and this is for the wise to see and know for themselves, or for you to work with and become wise that you see and know for yourself. So for the Buddhist teaching, this was considered to be the, the right, proper, unshakable base for faith. That is your own personal, real own personal experience and your knowledge of what works for you. So not everybody, even though mindfulness of the breath worked for the Buddha himself, he didn't teach it to everybody. <coughs> didn't say that was for everybody. He taught actually quite a variety of meditation methods to different people. Yeah, so this is one of the kind of great things that we think about most people. For me, there's what's in my realm of experience, and I will generally talk from that. And if I'm talking theory, I'll say that I'm talking theory, or what I've learned, or what I've heard from other people worked for them. But I'll generally stick to my own experience and what, what has worked for me. Yeah? Uh, the Buddha, for whatever reason, was able to do actually more than that because of being able to really tune in with where each person was actually at and understand like what's happened to them, where they are now, and what method is going to be just right for them. So this is one of the reasons why we particularly revere the Buddha, although lots of other people have gained completely gained the benefits of this path of practice uh, progressively over time, over a very long period of time. But it's one of the reasons why we particularly revere the Buddha is because he's supposed to have been so, number one, for being the founder, 
number two for being particularly excellent uh, with regards to these things that not everybody else could actually do so completely and so well. Even they ended their ignorance, they ended their suffering, but that special ability to really tune in and be with where each person was at and you know, say just the right thing uh, for them, for those in, uh, in his audience, that was supposed to be a special thing. So, going back to the Atman, uh, the soul or the self, and the Atta, and what it is or what it isn't, yeah? Uh, for me, I feel like talking about soul and what, uh, what the Buddha felt like he realized it is and, and it isn't is actually easier for me, for whatever reason, maybe being born in the United States and growing up here and this kind of thing, I feel like non-self can actually be a little confusing. But uh, speaking earlier on, we were thinking that from a Christian background, saying non-soul might have been threatening or uh, like not felt okay, especially if it wasn't really understood what was being talked about or what wasn't being talked about. But non-self, the denial of self or this kind of thing may have been really comfortable to those who were doing the translations and like, yeah, we can deal with that. That's just fine. You don't have to, you know, it's not not going to be threatening the fundamental basis of your, of your faith to think about uh, self-denial as compared to soul, soul denial. But uh, let's take a look at what was actually meant by Atman in the context that we're talking about, yeah? Because I find this really helpful. Uh, the Atman is defined as being something, number one, eternal and unchanging. An eternal, unchanging essence that passes from life to life, eternal and unchanged. Yeah? So that's the way that word, the Atman or the Atta, that's the way that was defined. It was actually defined by three things uh, eternal, uh, unchanging, also eternally pleasurable or eternally blissful, okay? So, old Indian language, even contemporary Thai language, Atma, Atta, people use it. They actually do use this word uh, interchangeably as we would with the word I. So this is a deep old cultural thing, and this is where it starts to make sense to actually talk about that as self. But in this case, this would be like the kind of eternal, unchanging, ultimate selfhood. Okay? So the Buddha's teaching on this was normally, normally what do we call our self? What, what would we normally identify as self? I mean. Uh-huh. And, okay, let me think about, um, like, I have an ID card. If somebody asked me who I am and asked me to prove it, mm -hmm. uh, one of the first things that happens normally when that comes about is they want your ID. Um, and so I have, I have a California ID. Uh, I live in California. And on that ID, what do you find? Your name, name and picture. picture, right. So these two things actually we also find as being very big in uh, like the general definition of selfhood in ancient India. Uh, so body, your physical form, and then this would be called nama rupa, name and form. So form, the body, yeah, and name is used for all the mental stuff. So your, your name would be included as a, as a mental fabrication. So physical body and then the ideas, all of the ideas. Yeah. So under those, let's see, body, feelings, actually body, feelings, what else? Perceptions, perceptions uh, also called concepts, conceptions, ideas, 
and another kind of mental formation or fabrication. It's like the, the making something mentally, how things get, get fabricated or how they get formed. Uh, these are called samskaras or sankaras. Um, mental, even volitional formations. If we talk about your your will, your intention, your volition, yeah, and then consciousness. So often translated as just consciousness, but in fact, according to the Buddha's <coughs> teaching, not only one consciousness, but like six primary bases of consciousness with different types of consciousness. So here is an interesting thing for those of you who either have had a kind of a natural awakening uh, or have been meditating and have really become, you know, started to understand more about what's going on with your body and mind, got to know yourself uh, much more through this process. So according to the Buddha's teaching, visual consciousness is not the same thing as auditory consciousness. It's not that there's just one consciousness that is, you know, going through the eyes and going through the ears and going through the nose and the mouth and, uh, you know, covering the, the skin, the body, the physical sensations and also covering mind as a base. Not that there's one consciousness, but actually it's very much like some of the technology that we're working with. So, let's see, if I have an iPhone, I don't have an iPhone, but if I had an iPhone, <laughs> I don't want an iPhone either, but if I had one, <laughs> uh, if I had an iPhone, then if it were now yesterday evening in the middle of the meditation group, someone's iPhone went off, <laughs> and <laughs> then we were talking about iPhone afterwards, and uh, she said it's an iPhone 6. <laughs> I don't know even about 5 and 4 and 3, but uh, so it can take video, and for taking video, it's got one thing built into it, and it can do audio, and for audio, it's got another thing built into it kind of like this. Mm -hmm. So got video going on here and audio going on there. And according to the Buddha's teaching, then these there are these sense bases like the eyes and the ears and the nose for smell, but they are all running their own unique consciousness. Mm -hmm. They're all running different programs. And then those get integrated together quite quickly very quickly and something a little bit faster than the 60th of a second which makes it possible so you're able to be looking and seeing and, and I can be looking at her and I think she thinks that she's looking and hearing at the same time but it's actually there's this integration going on so the eye consciousness visual consciousness is working and auditory consciousness is working and she thinks not only that but I can feel my hands as well so touch consciousness <laughs> is also working if the doggy is sitting down next to someone perhaps smell consciousness might be working as well <laughs> and uh, you know feeling soft and also listening and uh, uh, this kind of thing and it seems like it's all happening at once and yet these would be all different and then the, the thinking about it the reflecting back on what you're on what you're hearing in that momentary reflection going on also a different type of consciousness working yeah so all of these are considered different types of consciousness so for these five basic things that I just covered so form physical body feelings and these feelings are like feeling tones emotional tones so feelings of pleasure feelings of pain feelings of neutrality or equanimity uh, those those kinds of feelings as another base and the perceptions and the volitional mental formations and then consciousnesses Okay? Almost every other translation you'll read it will say consciousness. And I just wanted to mention about that part so that you don't get the wrong idea. Um, because sometimes people get the wrong idea about that. And when they get the wrong idea about that part, then often they feel like, like, okay, I might understand that ultimately myself is not the body. Or I might understand ultimately myself is not feelings because the body is continually changing, feelings are continuously changing. I might understand myself, remember, permanent, pure, e 
eternal, <laughs> eternally blissful entity, his soul, the Atman, uh, I might understand, okay, body is not that. I might understand <laughs> <laughs> these feelings of ephemeral feelings of pleasure and pain and uh, boredom and uh, 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 even equanimity. Uh, also, that shifts so fast. It was there one moment and now it's gone. As soon as the doggy comes near me, my equanimity is past. Uh, <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe just feelings of neutrality. Or maybe feelings of, oh, pleasure of touching a nice soft doggy. This is you know, nice feelings. This eternal, pure entity. Um, also easy for people to say that perceptions, concepts, to think about that not, also not, not that, that perceptions, are perceptions changing moment by moment or no? Really? Have you ever met anybody where it seems like their concepts are just really, really not changing. Yep. <laughs> 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 but is it real? Is it true? If they're a human being, is it really is it really so? Is a good question. It can certainly seem like that. And I know I've felt stuck also on things that were on on concepts. Sometimes mm -hmm. I've felt completely blocked by my own views and it seemed like they're just a rock wall or just come up against this thing that's like it's not budging, it's not moving, it just seems stuck. And, um, and yet, you know, one day later, ten days later, next month, I already forgot about it. And, <laughs> and then I look back from the year after and it's all shifted and changed and moved. And uh, even sometimes it lasts years, but then it shifts and it shifts. And, um, uh, so for perceptions also, I'll, I'll leave that as a question for you. Is that the eternal, pure Atma or not? Uh, but here, when we start to get into the other stuff, especially then people normally think for their intentions. Is your intention, is your intention forever? Is it something, do in intentions, do volitions, do they shift and change? Or are they permanent, eternal? What would you say? They change. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, most people, it's pretty easy. But then when we talk about consciousness, especially if we talk about it in the singular, this is often where people, often, this is where people then, not sure. It seems like there's something that's steady. It's, you know, it's passing, it can, can seem like something steady, passing through everything. Like there, every waking moment of the day, and you know, it seems like because, because of that integration, yeah, that happens, then it seems like passing, the consciousness is passing through the seeing, and the hearing, and the smelling, and the tasting, and all of the mental things, and like it's passing through everything. And this is, this is where, with this, like, feeling, of eternal selfhood. Sometimes, with some regularity, people are not able to distinguish consciousness, especially if you talk about it as just one thing, between the consciousness and the, the self part, the sense of self part, because consciousness is very, very, like, is it the same thing as awareness? We're not really clear about that in English, are we? Like, what is mind? What is awareness? What is consciousness? All kind of vague, you know. We live many years in this world. We go to school. We go through sometimes even university, even multiple university degrees for some people. And yet you ask, what is mind? And not really clear. Ask, what is consciousness? Don't really know. And, um, actually, now we're, we're doing some good work with that, I think. Uh, there's the Institute of Consciousness Studies, Mind and Life, and uh, I love some of the stuff that's going on with this now. I think that's, you know, a human being have body and mind and not clear what we're running. We've got all this technology, but we don't know what we're operating right right here and how to, you know, where is the user manual? <laughs> I learned lots and lots of stuff in school. There was so much stuff that I was supposed to be memorizing, but what about user manual for human body and mind didn't come with? <laughs> My parents weren't clear about a lot of things either. I didn't learn from them. My school teachers seemed even more ignorant for 
in many cases as a young person, at least I thought so. And uh, not to mention my friends. No, I don't know. We were clueless. <laughs> we were clueless, and at least some of the time we knew we were clueless. Other times we thought we knew better than everybody else in the world, but at least sometimes we knew we were clueless. <laughs> but knowing that we were clueless could be depressing, and uh, it really, you know, it was clear. You don't know what's going on with this. Uh, for me, for some people, that's not important. It's like, you know, talk about this kind of thing. Some of my fellows in high school <laughs> tried to talk about this kind of thing, and then we're walking along the food, <laughs> and then, <laughs> No more interested. <laughs> food, sex, let's see, what else? Other things were much more, like, <laughs> there are some more imminently important things <laughs> than talking about this kind of stuff. User manual, who needs it if you know where to find your food and the other things? <laughs> But um, so uh, there were there were such ideas for me. I was actually concerned about what what is what is going on with with these human bodies and minds and how to live well with them. And interested in these things called these ancient wisdom traditions and those who said that they had awakened, you know, and what what that meant and uh, if it was possible for for me and uh, for others to do and if it could reduce suffering. I was majorly suffering, so I thought that that was an open door <coughs> policy, all right. You know, uh, interested in giving <coughs> a good go. And um, over time, I found it to be uh, useful. Useful, yeah. But let's go back to this topic of self or soul and non-self, non-soul. So the Buddha asked, uh, with regards to the Atma, then and the body, as people would commonly say, you know, who are you? An answer like name and form, or a little bit more detailed as physical body, my feeling, my body, my feelings, my emotions, uh, my concepts, my ideas, my dreams, my memories, my thoughts and my consciousness as uh, whether they thought it's consciousness or consciousness is, is, is. Uh, so this is what people would commonly describe as themselves uh, so the question was for each of these things that people normally talk about as themselves whether if they're not permanent not eternal, or what else? Blissful, happy. eternally right, eternally happy, eternally blissful. Is it right to call that the the atma or not? Yeah, uh, the atta or not? Because in that language, this one word was being used for both things. It means for self and for the idea of the eternal soul. And the Buddha's perception about this was that it's not proper to say that things that are shifting and changing moment by moment, like bodies and feelings and these minds like this, that they're, they're impermanent and ever-changing, that they're in flux, that they're processes, uh, that they're there's a very serious, serious terminology. Dependently originated. Codependently originated. <laughs> uh, yeah, dependent origination. Uh, it's actually one of my favorite subjects. Um, this means that uh, things come into being through conditions. The coming together of conditions. And when the conditions are right, when they come together, like for this happening right now, this this our, our getting together here this evening, would you call it a self or not? Some people are shaking their heads. Do we have a self-identity? The group has a name. A it has yeah. a form. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting it's to look at. Group identity. Group identity. There you go. 
Sangha, okay. And so uh, the Buddha's teaching then about uh, the self part was that what's happening is like a group identity, mm-hmm. which means that there are a bunch of different things that have come together. And like this group identity, so tonight there is who has come, but do you think you're going to have exactly the same people here next week? (laughs) No. Does the group identity continue or not? What if the group changes name? What if all the people are different next week? Does it still have the group identity? Or has the group identity changed? And what remains the same? So this is very similar then to the Buddha's teaching on self and non-self. Actually, when asked in detail about it, he did not deny there being any conventional, conventional self. Just that there's something that can happen where we think that there's some like eternal, unchanging core that uh, sometimes was called like. I don't know that we build, are there any kind of buildings that we build that have a ridge pole now? Do you know what a ridge pole is? So at that time people built buildings with a, a ridge pole and sometimes there were buildings that had a pole that went up the center and sometimes a pole that went across the top that was the ridge pole. And the ridge pole, the way it was built was like the thing that held the rest of the building together. So then it had its other, you know, other other poles that were down. Um, it had its walls. Uh, it had, you know, various the various floor, roof, things like that. So these are all parts, right? So this would also be called the building would also be called a like this group in a way, yeah. But mm-hmm. it had that pole that was there which was like the one thing that held that kind of building together. So he said for the human being, this is where we can get confused, is we can have a feeling that there is some, some indivisible thing that like everything else is linked to and tied to and, and circling around. Yeah? But then ask, what, what is that? Where does it reside? Yeah? Does it, is it is it in the body? Is it in the feelings? Is it in the, the mental concepts? Is it in the consciousness? Where, what is it? Where is it at? And with awakened awareness, he found that it was just like this group and the group identity. Coming together of various factors, and you might say that one person or another is the ridgepole, right? But if she's not here, or if the other guy's not here, can be somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And still, the group can go on. Yeah. So very similar in this way. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to stop, and um, I see just about everybody has really been reflecting uh, on this, and uh, this is. So just like there may be time for one question. <laughs> and then afterwards, you can ask your other group leader <laughs> all of the really hard and difficult questions on this and topic. And I'll make up answers. So. Um, but uh, the, the reason that I really, really love this is because sometimes people think this is like the super esoteric, mm-hmm. you know, like secret, very hard to understand, have to be extremely wise kind of core of the pivotal core of the Buddha's teaching or something. And yet, as I understand it, if you just look at it basically clearly, the average person looks at it and understands at least what the Buddha was teaching in early Buddhist teaching, it's actually not so difficult. It's something that we can really see for ourselves. Yeah? But little contemplation and uh, sometimes even a little awakening, like, aha, right. No, I realized something that I never realized before. One question? Yeah? Well, now I want to know what what you consider the self and what you consider the non-self. Is the non-self the 
the, the, the eternal or the is it the conglomeration? Mm. I mean, which is the which is the true self? Mm. So there's a nice question. And uh, he first asked, what do I consider the self and what do I consider the non-self? And uh, I would say, like, simple answer to both is no. No, <laughs> 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 oh, really. <laughs> uh, and... Um, so, you know, I, I understand conventionally, I mean, there, there, there is this body and there's a relationship with the feelings and, uh, and the thoughts and all of that, and I see that all of these things are shifting and changing, and, you know, they're held together by one thing or held together by other things, and if they're not held together anymore, we call that death, and uh, uh, the things go their separate ways, the elements go their separate ways, and... Uh, you know, the mind consciousness no longer hangs around with the body anymore, and then kind of this kind of integration that we have going on here. Uh, and so I guess, yeah, I would consider this conventionally, at least. I know this is, this is called the self, right? When these things, these various things come together in the way that they are, <coughs> just like you call this today, tonight, this is the identity of this group, yeah? Actually, it may have a bigger identity than that. It covers more more time. It covers the past gatherings. It covers things that are going to happen in the future. It covers people who aren't here. And like this for me, too, for this thing that um, uh, we would call, uh, at least call a self. And that's the very same thing that's also considered in the Buddhist teaching, what's translated as non-self. So the, the very, very same thing. So I guess... In another way, I could say yes to both. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that leaves time for another question or not. Hmm? No. <laughs> so, hmm. Uh, I hope that there can be some use in this, because it is possible to get stuck with regards our idea of self and other. And... Uh, I would say generally stuck uh, on thinking, holding this idea that's like there in the culture that we learned from our parents when we were very young, you know, this is me, this is you, these are the rules, this kind of thing, and thinking so strongly that there's something there in it that's like stuck together that might just be a thought. It might just be just another another thing that actually also is is impermanent and fixed and not an ultimate identity. I, if we stick to it as our self and think it's something final and ultimate, we can potentially get into a lot of trouble and a lot of pain and suffering and even conflict with that. And if we see what's actually going on with it, there's this space, there's this opening, there's this ease, and one base for uh, really like getting stuck and getting into conflict and affliction, I'd say, in, in ourselves, that getting stuck and bound up in our own minds that allows for the unbinding and the spaciousness and the ease and recognizing it's impermanent in flow, in flux, and then there's an, an opening, a releasing, the things get smooth, we're able to move, we're able to flow. Yeah. That's the value in it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Could you dedicate the merit or say, sure. say anything for us? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Lulu asked if I would like to dedicate the merit, and um, as far as I understand merit, it means good energy, benefit whatever benefit there's been in this for us uh, individually and collectively, the goodness of having such time and space. Uh, any growth and awareness, 
any ease brought to our bodies and minds. And thinking about, uh, in a way, offering that to ourselves and the lives that we're stepping into, our broader selves, what we are as we walk out of here, the paths that we're going to travel, uh, everywhere that we're going to go, those that our lives are going to be touching, to let the, those blessings and benefits spread out and flow out uh, through all of the, uh, the, the networks of our lives, our very interconnected and interdependent lives. And consciously to think about uh, anyone who we might wish to share these blessings and benefit with, who would like to share good energy with, if we have any friends or loved ones who might be in any trouble, in any difficulty, uh, just to let that good energy in our bodies and hearts, via our minds and consciousness, mind consciousness, spread out, flow out to them, wishing that these blessings and benefit may also be shared with them. Like branching streams that flow in the darkness are the coursing paths of human travel in the night, twinkling lights spread out around us, the lights of minds and hearts. Upwards into the sky, to any and all beings out there in the great vast darkness, out to all the planets and stars, even myriad universes out around this beautiful blue planet, this atmosphere, down, touching down to the earth again with its greenery and its soil, its waters, to all living beings, to all of life, this great interconnected flow of life, sharing a thought of blessings, benefit, good energy, goodwill, compassion, the undemanding gift of a wish that all be well, that all may be able to know happiness. that all may be able to know ease, that all may have moments of freedom from suffering and stress and pain, spreading outwards, and then also coming back into this room allowing that wish and that thought to touch down gently and softly upon everyone in this room. Everyone who has made this be the healthy space of blessing that it has been this evening together. All those who share in our group identity and then coming back into these networks that we call ourself. The energy around this body, its electrical field, the branching and coursing streams that flow through this body, energy, light and darkness, touch, this entire body into its core, our belly, heart, the depth of our deepest aspiration, our clear awareness, with the wish for our own well-being. We're allowing a 
little bit of an opening of possibility. Just unbinding. Even a tiny bit. The possibility. Without knowing what it means. To myself. My own deepest hearts, intentions, and aspirations. To everyone who's here together. To all that I know and love. All that I don't know. And to anyone I've ever had trouble with too. Out to all. To all is to myself. To all living beings. Mm -hmm. As to myself. Like the breath flows in and the breath flows out. Connected with the entire world. You know this chant, welcome to join me. That's a chant of appreciation. Yeah. Oh, glad to be with you. Thanks for sharing the space. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. Thank you.